Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Join this morning <clears throat> on the platform with Menno Hoptep, and he's going to be with me this morning as we preach this message. That was the Egyptian name that they believe was given to Joseph, Menno Hoptep. Anyway, that's not part of the message this morning. There's no quiz afterwards. You're in Joshua chapter 24. Joshua was an interesting, interesting individual. Uh, for one thing, he is at this particular time of the writing, the oldest, or I should say, one of the two oldest members of all the nation of Israel. That would be him. And then a couple pages over, I guess, Judges chapter 1, you meet Caleb, who is a man of some age, and yet his vitality and vigor had not been diminished. And so it's unique that they stand here <clears throat> at the end of their life and you consider for a moment all that they saw during their life. It truly is profound to consider. As you look back at the course of Joshua and Caleb's life in particular, they were born as servants in the land of Egypt. Now they were some years younger than Moses, no doubt. Moses was born in a time of uh, forced infanticide. The Pharaoh of that time, seeing that the people had uh, come to great numbers, the particular the Jewish people, had moved them from their place of, of uh, success, which was as shepherds. The uh, book of Genesis recalls to us that every Pharaoh dis had great disdain for herdsmen. And by trade, uh, the descendants of Abraham were herdsmen. They were men of cattle and of that type of agriculture. And so by the time you get to the time of Moses, some 120 years or so into captivity, uh, the transition begins occurring as forced infanticide. But then you remember that miraculously Moses is spared. Uh, he is raised, uh, at least in one sense, by Pharaoh's daughter, and he ascends to the highest levels of the court of uh, Egypt. And then around his 40th year, he sees an injustice occurring. His heart is moved. He wished it not at that particular time. It was God moving on his heart. It was God using a circumstance to work in him. And he responded to it instead of spiritually in a very visceral and fleshly way. And of such seeing his fellow man, the Jew, being beaten, he grabbed from thence and in his anger he slew a man. And even in those days, the natural law of capital punishment being as such, Moses flees and he goes to the wilderness and there he'll abide another 40 years. And it's sometime between the time Moses leaves for the wilderness and sometime before his return that Joshua and Caleb would have been born. And they will witness firsthand. In fact, if I could even, let me tread out a little bit. They will experience firsthand some of these plagues. It's approximately the first three plagues of Egypt by which will fall not only on just the Egyptians, but the Egyptians and the Hebrews. It's after the third plague that God said, I'm going to put a division between you. And at this division, it'll only fall on Egypt. And then you get to the final one, of course, and that fell harshly upon any, including the Jew and the Egyptian, that did not have the blood on the doorpost uh, of, uh, of each home. But I digress, Joshua and Caleb were alive during that time. They're alive at the time where Pharaoh's going to say, you can go. 
They're going to witness, and no doubt at the conversation of their kitchen tables, there'll be the constant rehearsing of all of the sudden compromises of the Pharaoh. For at once, before the Pharaoh finally submitted and recanted that submission, he at various times had made seeming concessions unto Pharaoh. I'll let you go so far, but you come back. I'll let you do this, but you do this. And he had brought up to these concessions, and no doubt that was something related at his daddy nun's table as they would have their mealtime. And Joshua would be part of that great group that would cross Egypt and leave Goshen, having been an experience of 400 years of difficulty and trial, and would face the great Red Sea. Joshua, with his own ears, would hear the complaints as they murmured against Moses, saying, Have you brought us out to this wilderness to die? He would hear with his own ears, the cavalry charge of Pharaoh, and all the blaring of the bugles as those great Egyptian divisions of cavalry and horsemen begin to hurl themselves towards the defenseless Jews. He perhaps would see with his own eyes Moses going upon the edge of the Red Sea and lifting his hands from thence with that great rod and seeing the miraculous division of the Red Sea and of such that there was dry, dry uh, ground upon which they would trod. Joshua would have his sandals, or at least that of the one that carried him, cross that Red Sea Valley. He'll come into the mountain of God. When you find him in the 20th chapter, he and Moses are on the mountain of God. That's why I don't think that he can be a young man. He'll experience all the murmurings and the wilderness wanderings. He'll experience something that Moses never did as he'll be able to go into the Canaan the land of promise that God had for His people. I don't know that you'll find an individual, and yet we could stop still and talk about that he'll see the great city of Jericho, that gateway to Canaan, (coughs) crumble at the Lord's demand. I can't think of too many other individuals in all of Scriptures whose life would expand such such a large historical occurrence of events as Joshua. And yet you come to the last chapter and notice in the 15th verse. (coughs) He says, And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, note our word, choose you. Choose you this day whom you will serve or the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell, but as for me and my house, will serve the Lord. You see, you would think, by experience, by interaction, by witness, that serving God would be the desire of every noble Jew's heart. After all, every Jew that was present at this great message here at Shechem, Shechem's uh, um, a city in the valley between uh, Mount Gerizim and Mount Eba, and right there at thence, and you can imagine all the cities, all the people that have gathered then, and Joshua the Elevated as he proclaims all that are hearing this man whose voice now somewhat more feeble than it was many years before. 
this man who had experienced all this can speak of Egypt with great articulate ability. And yet he's conveying it to them, choose you this day. I remark as I just go through the 24th chapter that it seems that something of a redundancy, why would he proclaim that they needed to choose Jehovah? Wasn't it enough that they, like he himself, were descendants of Abraham? Isn't it enough that they had made it to the land of Canaan? Isn't it enough that their history and their traditions are directly tethered to the theophany that they will one day experience as being governed by judges and the only, the only group of people in that particular region not governed by any king? Wouldn't it be enough to know that many of these that were with Joshua, though much younger, had experienced the provision of God, the manna that fell from heaven? That many of these, under the age of 40, younger than Joshua is at this time and a four, had experienced repletely God's deliverance and how He gave to them this land of habit? Wouldn't it be enough? Why is He saying it's a time for choosing? Note, if you will, back in the beginning of chapter 24. Before I get into the choice that needs to be made and the particulars thereof, I think there's a couple of expressions that are nailed down in this message that Joshua is preaching here at Shechem. Notice, if you will, in verse number 2. I'm only going to mention this because it's four times in this text and nowhere else found in Scriptures. And all times is a point of derision against those that deny the Bible. And all times something that is misunderstood. But note this phrase in verse 2. Ye fathers, your fathers, dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time. Now keep in mind, they dwell on the other side of the flood. What flood? What's he talking about? Well, he's going to give some description. Look at verse 2. Even Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, they served other, other gods. And I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood and led him throughout the land of Caden and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. Now, I ask you a question. What's he talking about? Was Abraham and Noah contemporaries? What's the flood he's talking about here? If he's talking about the deluge, the flood of Noah's day, then the Bible obviously has a glaring error. And old man Joshua's let dimension set in for him. And he's got all the genealogies mixed up because he'll do it again. He'll do it again uh, later in the chapter and also in verse number 14. There it is, verse 14 and 15. He'll, do, he'll talk about the other side of the flood. You, know, you read this, three, this, this thing through quickly and you'll assume he's talking about the flood of Noah's day. It's not what he's talking about. In fact, uh, not to bore you, but the two different Hebrew words. The flood of Noah's day specifically has one word, and it's only really used for that emphasis. It, it wouldn't fit anywhere else. This word flood has the idea of that of a, of a sea or a river upon which overran her banks due to flooding. What he's really referencing is found in Joshua chapter 1. In Joshua chapter 1, Joshua and all of the host is before him. They're entering into the land of Jordan. 
And the scriptures indicates in the beginning chapters that there was something particularly about the time in which they entered the land of Jordan. Do you remember? So it was a time of harvest and the Jordan overflowed her banks. He's not talking about Noah's deluge. He's talking about one that they would have all experienced. It was the overflowing of the Jordan River across their banks. It's another way of saying before we came into the land of promise. So by reference, he's talking about the other side. He's talking about those that were his contemporaries, his and Caleb's, that had passed away in the wilderness wandering. They were on the other side of the flood of Jordan. They were before that which you have experienced. You see, Joshua and Caleb were the only two living Israelites at the time this was penned that witnessed with their own eyes the segregation of the Red Sea and its culminating powers. It flooded and drowned all of Pharaoh's forces. But practically every one of them present, except those with real youth, knew exactly what he was talking about when he said the other side of the flood in old time. He's talking about that time 40 years ago or so when we got this land that God has given us, Canaan. This is an important note to consider. Notice what he said those before time. All the way back to the father and grandfather, Terah and Nacor of Abraham. He said of them, they served other gods. Verse 3, God says, I, uh, th- uh, Joshua Reflecting on what the Lord said, I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood and I led him throughout all the land of Canaan. I multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. It speaks in verse 4 about what he has given Jacob and what he has given Esau. And what he has done with Moses is he has sent him down with Aaron, plaguing of Egypt. And yet again and again he mentions, and we could continue in the coming verses as we will in a moment, And he talks about the prevalence of pagan gods. Why is there that there needs to be a life of every uh, point of time in every individual's life where they have a time of choosing? I think one of the considerations to keep in mind is there is always a constant prideful desire embedded in the heart of man to resist God and His goodness. It is not natural to desire salvation. The psalmist put it this way in the 14th Psalm. God looked down figuratively upon the sons of men. See if there were any that came after him. If there were any good, the psalmist declared in the 14th Psalm, there's none righteous, no, not one. Man's pride, the proverb says, will bring him low. The reason there must be a personal, individual choosing for the things of God is because innate, deeply in the heart of every individual is a prideful desire that would resist even the very thought and contemplation of God. Look for a minute, minute, a couple he's going to reference. He accuses, and rightly so, that some of the ancestors of the Jews worshipped pagan gods. Look at verse 2. Terah and Nacor, and they served other gods. Now we're told in Genesis chapter 12 that Abraham came from the land of Ur of the Chaldees. 
That is not to be confused with the Chaldees of Daniel's time, the Babylonians. History to distinguish those calls Nebuchadnezzar and the time of Daniel the Neo-Babylonians. Or the Chaldees was a city-state in the Sumerian Empire and the ancient Babylonian kingdom. Uh, you might remember Hammurabi and his stella that has the commencement of his Codex of Walls that was mentioned. This is that pagan group he's talking about. Interestingly enough, they had something that resembled pyramids. Only the steps of said pyramids were more inclined and one could step upon it and they were called ziggurats. And on the top of those ziggurats as they got to the very top was an altar. And you'll never guess what that altar was for. It wasn't to worship the God of heaven. Pagan polytheistic worship. That's what Abraham was saved out of. Now, before I move any further, I must relate this. One could look at this and say, well, why didn't Abraham? One could go and say, well, what about Abraham? Did he worship pagan gods too? I mean, if your daddy and your granddad, if you came from a lineage of them, aren't you condemned to your daddy's fate? Isn't what daddy did what you have to do? If your daddy's a bum, you have to be a bum? You have to make the same mistakes your daddy made? No. So, here's an interesting question. How did Abraham learn about the God of heaven? Pretty good question, I think, isn't it? He learned about it the same way you and I do. Did the heavens cease to declare the glory of God in Abraham's time? Have they changed in such a way that they cannot declare the glory of God today? No. But I'll tell you once more. The word of God and truth was known in Abraham's day. I'll make a statement. He wasn't the only righteous man that lived at this point in time in history. Seems a few chapters afterward, Genesis chapter 12, he's going to go to a place called Salem. And there in such city, Salem, he's going to meet a man who's got the moniker of the priest of the Most High God. You know who I'm referencing? He's a shadowy figure, and that's a pun. I mean that in more than one way. We know very little about him, but he was a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. And he's making offerings exclusively to the Most High God. And it was Father Abraham when he went into Melchizedek that tithed of all his possessions into the God of heaven. Where to learn all that? I submit to you there has never been a time since the dawn of creation to this very moment in time where God's knowledge around the world has not been made known by someone at some times. The God that loved humanity enough to provide a living way through His Son Jesus Christ has not hid under a veil of darkness His salvation only for a select few to discover. I submit to you that Nacor and Terah knew the God that Abraham worshipped.
and they made a diabolical choice. They refused to worship him. That's the same choice people make today, is it not? Romans chapter 1. Notice, I'll read it for you just for a moment. I happen to have it marked from our Thursday night. Listen, listen to this. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. And who remembers the last part of that phrase? So they are without excuse. Because that when they, fill in the blank, Pharaoh, Ramses, Nahor, Terah, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination. Their foolish heart was darkened. You know why there has to be a choice in the life of every individual? Because there is an innate prideful desire to resist God and His goodness. The progenitors of the ancient Hebrews, the fathers of the Jewish fathers, were idol worshipers. Throughout the scriptures there are pagan kings, some whose names are known like Sihon and Or, Og, Sihon and Og, and some who are not. And yea, even in the time of Joshua, there was an element of idol worship present as he's giving this his final sermon. Look, if you will, in chapter 24. Look in verse 23. It just tickles me here that he's given this message, Serve the Lord! And they're all like, We'll serve the Lord! So go put away your idols. There was an element within the camp, present tense with him, that had strange gods among them. Why? Of all the people on the face of the earth, why would some of the Jews that were present at that particular time have anything to worship outside Elohim, Jehovah God? I submit to you, there is within man a prideful desire to resist God and attribute His goodness to anything other than Himself. That's what Romans says when they worship the creation more than the Creator God. It's a time of choosing. Why? Well, in addition to a prideful desire, I'll give you a second thing. Because there is a powerful division between gods and all the other idols, images of man, Pagan deities? I just do not want to use the word God, even if it's in lower tense, lest you think that I somehow might assume that there's equivalence between them. There's a time of choosing. There's a powerful division betwixt the God of heaven and all the pseudo-gods that man's mind forments. Look at the descriptions here given in chapter 24 about what God did. In fact, focus on the singular first person pronoun, I, because Joshua, if you'll excuse my bluntness, ain't talking about himself. Notice what he says. Verse 3, I took your father Abraham and led him throughout the land of Canaan. And by the continuation of this conjunction and the subject I is understood, I multiplied his seed. And again, I gave him Isaac. That's right. 
geneticists didn't bring about some miraculous conception of Isaac. Mom was past the time of children. And Abraham, I like this phrase, well-stricken in years. It almost makes it sound like a curse. Well-stricken. Well-stricken in years. In so much, when that Christophany conveyed yet again the continuation of a promise that Abraham would have a physical, legitimate son, what did Sarah do? Laughed. Hence his name in the Hebrew, Isaac. Laughter. He goes on. And I gave to Isaac two sons, Jacob and Esau. If you prefer a better vernacular, smooth and hairy. And I gave unto Esau, Mount Seir. Possess it. But Jacob and his children went to Egypt. Verse 5. And I sent Moses and Aaron. And I, Jehovah God, I plagued Egypt. According to that which I did among them afterwards, I brought you, that is, Israel out. I brought your fathers out of Egypt. And when they cried unto the Lord, Joshua is mentioning here, he brought between you and the Egyptians, he brought the sea upon them and covered them. So that your eyes may see what I, God the Father in heaven, has done in Egypt. I brought you into the land of the Amorites. There's a fascinating people group, the Amorites. They truly are fascinating. They're an ancient people that were a constant source of trouble for everybody. Yet the end of Solomon's rule, they became slaves to the Jews. The Amorites, I mean. Historically, the better part of five, six, seven, eight hundred years or better, the Amorites were everybody's plague. They were descendants of Canaan. That is, Canaan, the son of Ham, the son of Noah. They dwelt in powerful city-states. One of them is an ancient ruin, but it has a town that some years ago was in the news, Aleppo in Syria. It used to be the ancient home, not that current city, but the ruins around it was near that modern-day city. Or Carchemish. They had several kings, Sihon and Og, one of them which is described as having a bed that was 13 feet long. Five kings of their descendants were fought on the field of battle by Joshua in his time, and it's described in the 10th chapter of Joshua. It's not until the days of Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 7, that it said that the Amorites and the Israelites were at peace. Multiple generations. In Amos chapter 2, he gives an insight on Og, who I believe is the one that listed had that bed 13 feet long, and he says of him, he says of them as a whole, that they were giant people. And they historically and biblically are known as a warrior group. There are some that speculate that after the fall of the middle kingdom of Egypt, which would correlate likely to the exodus 
There's a group of foreigners called the Hyksos that came in, and many believe it's Amorites, that when the army had been defeated by Jehovah God, it left Egypt open. The Amorites swarmed in and for generations put their own king upon the throne of Cairo. Amorites. Nobody could defeat them. Pharaoh would be fighting them. A later Pharaoh would be fighting them in a battle called Megiddo hundreds of years later. And note verse 8. I brought you into the land of the Amorites. He references them again later in verse number 11. The Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And I delivered them into your hand. Now what's interesting about all these groups is they all have polytheistic pagan gods. And yet over throughout the narrative of Joshua's life, each pagan god, the god of gods and the king of kings, had systematically and consistently defeated them in their pseudo-realm. You could take of all the gods of the Amorites, they were polytheistic, God methodically destroyed them. They could not resist the armies of Jehovah, or for that matter, the word of Jehovah as it inhabited the land that he had given to Abraham. It couldn't put them out. It wasn't that they didn't try? The other giants in the land, like the Philistines, they would have the same come to that conclusion. No God, Joshua says, is like unto our God. There must be a choice because there is a powerful division between the true God and the false deities. Notice a third consideration. That is this, there is a persistent demand throughout human history for pagan deities. What do you mean? They're never needed, but there's always an ample supply. And you might consider, well, we don't have that today. And I would remind you only of the fifth chapter of 1 John, the 21st verse. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. They most certainly do. There never has, nor never will be a time that there isn't an influx of pagan deity on a culture, people, or nation. The reason there'll always be an ample supply is because it's a spiritual matter. 2 Corinthians tells us that the God of this world hath blinded the hearts of them that are without. Lest they see the glorious, illuminating, manifesting power of God. The God of this world is in the business of deception. He's in the business of promoting things that are anti-God. Yet deep within the heart of every individual, God has made them. And they live in His own image. God has placed innately in the heart of everyone a desire to communicate and a knowledge of the existence of a supreme God. Theologically, there's no such thing as an atheist. Theologically, an atheist is nothing more than really a self-worshipper. It's really the only difference. They simply have placed themselves on the throne of their own heart. A persistent demand. They existed before the flood. And I speak of the great deluge for a moment. 
the time of Noah's day, riddled with paganism and wickedness. You remember what the Lord said in the 24th chapter of Olivet Discourse? As it was in the days of Noah? The meditation of their heart was only evil continually? It ain't never been as bad in world history as it was in them their days before Noah. It was really bad. And then you've got a period of time of brief reprieve where you have that deluge and the eradication of all ungodly except for eight souls. There's one altar on the face of the earth. That might be the only time since the Garden of Eden it was that way. It won't be the last time. It just might have been the only time since. There'll be another time yet. And he offered an offering. And it's a short while after that that his descendants begin to go in different ways and I'll be if they're not building a tower called Babel. And that wasn't to worship the God of heaven. They're always in abundance. Before the flood, as we looked at a moment ago, through the times of Joshua, through the books of the kings, you'll find them. And I might would note that the ramifications even exist to our culture today. That's true, we've got idols. They look a little different, but the essence of worship is identical. It's always amazed me. Uriah, the same of fame in Isaiah chapter number 6. Isaiah's writing the king when King Uzziah. So Uriah, it's the same man. The day he died, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. He was a fascinating man. He reigned for many years. He mostly did that which was good in the sight of God. Except upon one thing. He treaded upon the altar of the holy and God struck him with leprosy. In his mercy he let him live though. And so he would move and become co-regent with his son, Hezekiah. And Hezekiah would reign and do good in the sight of God. He was not a perfect man, but he did right in the sight of God. And he was faced with what was deemed to be an incurable disease. The prophet came and said, get ready thy house. The soul is required and he prays and God delivers him and gives him 15 more years of life. It's during that son, uh, during that time frame, those 15 years he had a son. A son that was born to him named Manasseh. And this son would rise in ranks to become the king that would follow Hezekiah and the throne. And I want to tell you something you read about Hezekiah in 2 Kings chapter 21. Listen to this. And Manasseh made his sons to pass through the fire. You know what that's a reference to? Molech. Ancient pagan deity. In the valley of Hinnom. And they would take and offer their children live sacrifices to this pagan god. Now mind you, Manasseh didn't come out of Egypt. Manasseh came out of the loins of a dad and a granddad that were by all accounts good kings. Made a choice, didn't he? You know, I don't know today in society, we may not have a God like Molech, but there's still a lot of sacrifices by which children are put through today. You, you think of some of the trafficking, wicked, godless trafficking that hurts little children around the world. 
The same pagan entity that was behind Molech is the same pagan entity behind that. It's a travesty at our southern border. It's wicked. Where'd it come from? John chapter 10. He references this, that the thief cometh not but to kill and to steal and destroy. Same God. Same God behind Molech. It's the same God behind a lot of the idols today. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, you find about a fish god named Dagon. Half man, half fish. It was into his temple that he took the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, and it fell before it and break asunder finally, the final fall. He was the God of sustenance. Those Philistines lived near the Mediterranean Sea. And that was their sustenance. They'd go out on the, on the sea and they would harvest and they lived by that. God of sustenance, Dagon. Oh, by the way, sounds a lot like some of the dreams today. Encourage children to gather all the substance and wealth that they can. It's the same God behind both of them. Look on your walls here. Right there. Right there. Oh, those are our attempt at hieroglyphics. Ancient Egypt, full of gods. You notice that first one. Got the little cup. It's over here too. Got the little cup. You know what that is. Scripture says in the 7th chapter of Exodus that God was going to cause all the water to turn to blood, not just the Nile. In verse, rather, Exodus chapter 7, it talks about all the tributaries and ponds, all the drinking water. He specifically won't be able to drink it. That's what he specifically said. You know, that was directed at the gods of Egypt. Happy, the spirit of the Nile. Osiris, the claim was the Nile was his bloodstream. Egypt was fascinating demographically. It's desert on either side of the Nile. But where the Nile is, a fruitful plain. They depended on her. During the rain season that come, or I should say the flood season that came, further south because it empties down backwards from our perspective, it would flood and take all of that rich, nutrient-laden settlement on either side of its shore and provide the fertilization necessary for them to harvest and live. And so what did they do? They worshiped the God of abundance, the God of the Nile. And next image there, what you got? It's a frog. It's a goddess of fertility. Hect is the name. Not worshiping the God that openeth and closing the womb. But rather that the God... You see how cheap that is? In our society today, we have evolution. It does the same thing. Teaches that a child is nothing more. Evolution factors greatly into the understanding of the debate over pro-life and pro-choice. If you believe evolution, that it's a process of evolution, and then you, from the moment of conception onward, you're developing into the species. Partly you might be like a pole tad. I said that backwards, tadpole. My brain's moving faster than my mouth can. 
but it all factors into it. You're an accident. It's unintentional. So really, it should be someone else's choice. Frogs. You know, frogs... <laughs> frogs had such great protection in Egypt, you weren't allowed to kill them because they worshipped them. By the way, there's frogs here in America that have greater protection than some unborn children. Pagan. You know which is more important in the sight of God? Put it this way. In Matthew 18, he said, all the children are mine. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, he said, any meat may be consumed as long as they be given the things. You can go home tonight and have a bowl full of frogs and between you and God, that's okay. I, you don't have to invite me. But there is a direct order that God placed it. What's the next one? We got confused on tic-tac-toe. No, no. Hard to draw a good lice. You know, that was a god of Egypt too. Seb, the earth god. The next, you got your flies, right? They actually had a specific god that was a god of the flies that they worshipped. You say, that's nasty. It really is. The flies are fascinating insects. They can lay those little maggots on anything and life will come from it. Just look at Trash Day on a good summer. They're their God they worshipped. Then next you have a disease on the cattle. Amun, the God of the bull. It's an interesting ancient people, not just of Egypt, ancient people worshipped the cows. When Moses was up in the mountain of God... They took of all the rings that was in their ears, which was a token of their slavery from Egypt. That's where that came from. They took of all their gold and they melted it down. And what did Aaron fashion them? Interesting. Where did he get the idea? Pagan society worshipped it. Not just the Egyptians. The Amorites, the Gerbishites, the Hizzites, the Hivites, the Hittites. Then next, what do we have? Balls. Imohoptep, the god of healing. Serapis, the god of epidemics. It's interesting, some of the early plagues, in particularly this one, some of the early plagues, the sorcerers like Janus and Jambres were able to replicate. In particularly, when they get to the bulls, there's a passage in Exodus that said, and it troubled much the sorcerers. I bet it would. You're supposed to have all the answers. And now your body covered with boils. Physician, heal thyself. Next is hail. Newt. Isis. Shu. Set. Pagan gods. I mentioned this Thursday night. These specifically Set and Ra were so immensely important to Egypt that they would name their military divisions after them. You know, instead of having the 101st Division or this division, they'd have Ra and Set and they'd name them. And their standards that they would carry would be marked with the pagan entities. And so subsequently, the division that was most useful in the winning of a victory was the one that was promoted and that was the God that was attributed 
glory and majesty. Locusts, Serapi. She was an Egyptian deity. And the one that was supposed to be able to will and control the locusts. If they came, it was obviously at her judgment. If they left, it was obviously at her success. And then next you've got that triangle of darkness. This is a direct assault upon the deity of Ra. Sometimes referred to by combination of Amun-Ra, the god of the sun. And then lastly is represented here with the blood over the doorpost. You've got the death of the firstborn. And it's totality really. Osiris, who's supposed to be the protector. And yet to an essence it's all the individual gods that were to protect all of Egypt. It's no accident that God chose the plagues as He did. And there's a reason He did it. Because His covenant people had a choice to make. And they looked at the pagan deities that were and they assimilated to it. And they never made a personal choice. And that would be their own plague for time and time to come. There is a persistent demand for pagan gods. Notice a fourth consideration. And that is the pronounced distinction on the one true God. Look, if you will, in verses 19 and 20. He's going to make some revelations about God that we know to be true. Joshua said ye unto the people, Ye cannot serve the Lord, for He is an holy God. He is jealous God. He'll not forgive your transgressions nor your sin if you forsake the Lord and serve strange gods. Then He will turn and do you hurt and consume you after He hath done you good. Pronounced distinction. He's the only holy God. If you want holiness, I know variableness of shadow of change, there's only one God, and that's Jehovah God. He said he's a jealous God. Here's an interesting consideration. We probably think of jealous in a negative connotation. He is a single God. He'll share his throne with no one. That stands in stark contrast to all the religions of the world that is given by the display we went over. It is polytheistic and they'll all share with each other. They'll all submit. Our God, the Shiva, Deuteronomy chapter 6, is one God. And He alone is God. And there is none like Him at all. The third thing to say about this, He'll forgive not your trespasses. Verse number 20, he'll consume you. I would note this, he's a just God. You see, all those pseudo-gods of the world, they're not really just. If you were to take and had time to waste, and you wanted to read about the ancient legends and myth gods of Greece and Rome, they're not just gods. They're involved in wickedness and immorality. They're backstabbing, they're betraying, they're conniving the tricksters, but not Jehovah God. No variableness of shadow of turning. No darkness. In fact, there are at least three things that God, the God of heaven, hath not the ability to do. He does not tempt to sin, James says. He is not tempted with sin, neither tempteth he any man. Titus relates it this way, says he's the God that cannot lie. 
Those are things that your God, the God of heaven, cannot do, but they are not applicable to any other pagan deity that has ever existed. Why? Because they cannot consider a God that is not like themselves. A pronounced distinction. All these leads up to the reason. A time for choosing. For us to choose Jehovah as the sole God of our life is the most important decision that an individual is ever going to make. Why? Because judgment's coming. Ten plagues against ten gods of Egypt, but equally millions of people had an opportunity to have a choice. And each one of them with a resonating promise, this is an important decision that you make, O children of Egypt, because final judgment's coming. Why must people choose? It's the most important decision. You can be a pauper. Ask Lazarus about it in the 15th chapter of Luke. You can be a pauper and get that right. And you can be a rich man and get that right, wrong. It is the most important decision an individual is going to make. The second thing about choosing is this. It's an individual decision. Joshua could not make this decision for all those that he spoke to. No more than Abraham could make the decision for Nacor and Terah. It's individual. Ezekiel speaks to this. The soul that sinneth, it shall surely die. A third element is this. It must be an intentional decision. There's no such thing as an accidental Christian. Nobody accidentally gets saved. Listen, you can't trick somebody into becoming a child of God. You'll make an intentional decision. You might get to Baltimore by accident. First time I ever drove on the interstate in my life, I was driving through downtown Baltimore by myself without a GPS, had no clue where I was going. But I managed through my charms to get back safely. You won't get to heaven unintentionally. But you can get to hell unintentionally. Straight is the gate that leadeth to eternal life. And bold be the way to destruction. And many there be that find it. If you're going to accept Jesus Christ, it'll be an intentional decision you make. Number four, it's an immense decision. You want a motive for choosing? It's immense. Why? It's going to affect every other action you're going to make in life. For if by faith you have chosen Jesus Christ, you have submitted the revelation of His Word is true, then judgment is coming. It's going to dictate the course of events of your life. Genuine faith implies genuine action. This idea of being saved and then living like the world is not compatible with the New Testament or Old Testament. Number five, it will bring about an indefatigable pursuit. A continuous choice to please Him. Read over in Judges chapter 2, a powerful statement. After they were gathered unto their fathers, there arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which He had done from Israel. That is 
one of, I think, the saddest passages in all the Scriptures. Wasn't that important? It was unintentional. Wasn't immense. And there was no pursuit. And you've got a generation in Judges chapter 2 that's doomed. I'll give you a last thought about this. Why choosing? The choice is not an involvement. Sometimes folks equate salvation, faith in Jesus Christ, as a religious involvement. I'm not involved in a religion. We see a religion, that's the folks that go to church and never really think about the things of God until it's time to go to church again. I used to preach in the prison counties down in Maryland, in the county prison down in Maryland. I had a fellow go with me, and I asked him of his salvation once, to tell me of it. And he sat down and he laughed. And he said, man, he said, I never went to church growing up. He said, but I got married, and he said, my wife's Asian, and she went to the temple. And I decided I need to go to a temple. He said, but I was moved to go to the temple, and I tithed and everything. He said, you tie to the temple? He said, yeah. He said, they had a bulletin and they put your name and how much you gave. And I decided I was going to be at the top of that list. And I was. He said, I'd, I'd do anything I could to give more than anybody else so that they could think that I was a good guy. I said, well, were you saved? He said, oh, absolutely not. I mean, there's a host of people just that blind. Their name would get etched in a stone somewhere that they did some good deed. They'll try to be a good neighbor. They'll try reformation. But my friend, they're just a religionist. Salvation has nothing to do with your involvement. It is a dedicated, individual, important decision by faith to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your only means from avoiding the judgment that is to come. For on that great night in Egypt, the Lord sent the death angel But when he saw the blood, he passed over them. My friend, the only thing that will relieve a soul from the damnation of sin is when the blood of Jesus Christ is applied. It's a time of choosing. Might we choose by faith to make the right choice? Jesus Christ. Let's stand to our feet. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.